Welcome to the Executive Function Podcast, where we make the invisible keys to success easy for you to teach your child. We'll go beyond theory to proven action, helping you create peace and independence at home and at school. With your host, educational author, award-winning teacher, and celebrated learning coach, Sarah Kesti. Today, we have Gerilyn Spees, who is an OT and a mom and the founder of the Down Syndrome Action Plan. And Tribe, I found her when I read her really provocative, thought-provoking, gut-wrenching, beautifully written article on Medium, which I'll link in the show notes. And it just made me fall in love with her courage and her perspective and it is my honor to introduce Gerilyn. Oh, I am so, I'm so humbled. Thank you very much for that introduction. <laughs> You're welcome. I didn't warn you that it'd be a little bit cheesy, but ta-da. <laughs> so do you want to tell everybody about who you are and the Down Syndrome Action Plan? Sure. So I, I am an occupational therapist, as you said, and I graduated here in Buffalo in 1994, and I had been working in developmental disabilities through college. And then after I graduated, I worked um, at the day treatment center with people with developmental disabilities. And when I left there, I had the great fortune to become an OT partner at Western New York Physical and Occupational Therapy Group. And I had this incredible mentor, my boss, who just really encouraged me to think outside the box, to learn all I could. I had exposure to so many different areas of practice from pediatrics to head trauma to geriatrics to home care, really a holistic service um, idea. And while I was there, I met my husband and got married and we have three boys and my oldest son is at Boston College and my middle son is 16. And then Lucas was born and Lucas is 13. He was born in 2007 and he, we found out on the day of his birth that he has an extra chromosome. He had Down syndrome. And that was the day really that everything sort of changed for me. I had a really good understanding of the way traditional therapy, um, the traditional medical model and the traditional educational model looked at health development and education of people like my son. And I immediately started to question everything I, I knew. And early on, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit later in the cast, um, I was fortunate to stumble upon some information from just a, a brilliant place uh, called the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential. And what grabbed me immediately was the mind shift. Um, this thought that genes and chromosomes do not define you, brain plasticity and epigenetics, all of these things that we can feed into the system can create massive change for our children. And that was where it started. And so Lucas was very young and I set out on this path of kind of creating our new reality and simultaneously looking around really the globe for people who thought like me, because it really is sort of difficult, especially with a diagnosis of Down syndrome, most places that you go, whether it be Google or whether it be to a clinic that specializes in Down syndrome, there are a lot of foregone conclusions and there are a lot of things that people accept as limitations. And so I started on this trek to find people who thought like me and I found a few and I decided to start um, the Facebook group, the Down Syndrome Action Plan. And little by little, we've been growing and growing. And now, I think, I can't say for sure. I, last time I looked, there was almost 3,000 members. I think we're around that number. And many of those members are 
uh, offshoots of those original neurodevelopmental thoughts and reworking how we educate and, and help our children develop and be well. But we're also gathering a tribe of parents who have been following the traditional models and are beginning to question what else is there. So that was how the Down Syndrome Action Plan was born, and it's 11 years strong, and it really is such a source of inspiration and connection for me and our members. Yeah, and I, I joined too. <laughs> you know, um, I I hear so much of what you're saying in terms of why you felt motivated about that. And I think we had similar realizations probably around the same time when I realized that IQ was not set, yet I had participated in a few years worth of IEPs where we were determining children's placements based on IQ. Because even if you have a learning disability, that's um, the IQ is part of the formula of that um, archaic model now that um, we tongue in cheek call wait to fail, but basically they compare your IQ with your achievement. And if there's a big enough gap and you have a processing disorder, then boom, you're learning disabled. And sometimes we would put kids into classes that went so slow and demanded so little, plus had huge um, behavior issues, not to mention three grade levels to cover in one room. It just, you, we stacked against these kids when we should have been offering the best. And, you know, when I found that out, I felt like I kind of had, like, I don't know if this resonates with you, but I felt like I had a identity crisis of sorts, like looking around going, what have I been part of, you know, just, I've been a cog in this wheel that wasn't doing right by kids. And I thought I was. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I really couldn't. And I think, um, you know, I, I point out a lot of times, especially with children with Down syndrome, but certainly intellectual disabilities in general, children who have processing disorders, their history in school has not been that long, right? So in 1974 was the original public law that said these children had the right to come into this school building. And I can imagine if you were a school psychologist or a principal or a teacher who clearly had preconceived notions because prior to that, these children were in institutions or in their homes, they never came to school. Mm -hmm. in a position of thinking, well, what do we do with these kids? And I think the well-intentioned history from that point on has led us to what you were describing. So there's two different ideas here. So there is a clinical aspect to it. When you have the OT, the PT, the speech, you might have a psychologist. There is assessing of visual motor skills and physical skills and, you know, cognitive skills and processing skills. But then, as you say, when we all sit around the table to determine placement and programming, it's approached from a social model, a behavioral model, and an educational model. And so if the child demonstrates anything that deviates from uh, the expected behavior, it's dealt with from a behavioral approach. And if the child's processing does not allow them to learn in a sit and listen environment and that gap begins to grow, then it's understood that it's a cognitive problem. And that child then, as you say, is into a more restrictive setting where things are slowed down even more. And I just think that the IQ test given to children with processing disorders is not appropriate. It is literally testing their processing ability. And even if that test were given with the understanding that it's testing processing ability, there is no effort to improve the processing ability. So there's no neurodevelopment, even from the clinical pieces. Um, the clinicians are relegated to a role where, you know, if the, the student has a, a problem with handwriting, 
the occupational therapist may address handwriting from the outbound road, you know, look at the pencil they're using, look at the paper they're using, you know, teach them compensatory mechanisms to keep their writing going flat. Or if the child has difficulty sitting in their seat, the OT might come in and, you know, do some sensory intervention with this idea that sensory integration is somehow a bucket to be filled. And if we just bounce them on the seat, on the ball long enough or brush their skin long enough, it'll fill this need and then they'll be able to sit still. And so it's all revolved around this social model of getting the child to sit in a chair and act like everyone else but the piece that gets lost is actual learning i woo! <laughs> can i just join the choir right now because that's you're exactly right and then you know it does it does frustrate me too to follow up on that when we are sitting at the table and we uncover that the child has attentional concerns maybe auditory processing issues which is like 70% of kids who are diagnosed with specific learning disabilities have some sort of auditory processing concerns. And then we just say, okay, we'll give them some goals and stick them back in class. And we do literally nothing to address some of the issues that they have when we could be practicing. There are so many studies that show that repeated practice and mindful interventions can actually like grow neuro pathways and help beyond just, okay, well, now you can write a paragraph and you no longer shout out in class. You just hit the nerve of this. Um, I, I, I really don't want to call it a revolution, but for me, it was a revolution <clears throat> when I realized Oh, it is a rev. We're starting it right now. It starts today, this minute. <laughs> oh, like that is the point of the revolution. Like there is so much focus. And if I may just go back a touch um, mm -hmm. to infancy, right? So when the child is born and they have a, a diagnosis such as Down syndrome, some intellectual disabilities processing abilities or disabilities are not known for some time, but Down syndrome is. You immediately have the OT, PT, and speech therapist coming into the person's home, and it is this team effort for neural organization. You know, there's nothing really else to do. So the OT, the PT, the speech, they all work on this comprehensive inputting. The moment the child misses a milestone, it's like, oh, well, you know, he's going to be two and he's not walking yet and his ankles are weak. So we should probably give him braces for his legs and a walker and I'll get on one side of him and I'm going to get him under the arm and I'm going to help him get across the room to retrieve an item that I think he's interested in. And then we're going to march back over and we're going to take everything off. And this happens for 30 minutes, three times a week. When in reality, if the child's body is not neurologically and neurodevelopmentally wired to walk yet, if the ankles are not strong enough, if the reflexes are not integrated, if the neural wiring from the cerebellum to the motor cortex to motor planning, if that is not wired, the child is simply not ready to walk yet. Don't mm -hmm. him keep giving him the input. And so when we get to school and we immediately give the IQ test and we immediately understand that even though, um, you know, maybe it's a third grader, maybe the child's chronologically nine, but processing three, he's taking in and learning and acting upon his world basically as a three-year-old. So the goal should be, let's adapt our curriculum to his active learning need while the OTPT speech psychologist, everybody puts this comprehensive, intensive approach together to work on neurodevelopment, on wiring things together to push that needle of processing, and then a five, and then a six, and maybe a seven, you know? Yes, entirely. And I think that's, 
part of what drew me to your work was that you center so much on this perspective that genes don't create your destiny. And that's what I'm hearing you say. And I think that's a cautionary tale for any parent that's listening that has been told, you know, oh, lower your expectations. Oh, your child will never this and that. Like, I have yet to to meet a psychic doctor or teacher or school psychologist. It's just, it's based on this limited school view that whatever your label becomes your destiny. And it's just not accurate. It's defeating. Another thing that feeds into this is um, a traditional mindset that if a child has not achieved something by a certain age, then it's less likely that that's going to be achieved. And simply from a, a, a neurodevelopment point of view, looking at neuroplasticity in our brain, the human brain's ability to grow and change, um, I fundamentally reject that notion. As long as that child is living and breathing and that brain is alive, it is capable of immense change. But it's never going to change if we continue to focus on the outbound road. This idea somehow that practice makes perfect doesn't apply here. Children with neurodiverse needs, when their neurodevelopment is not connected, when their brain centers are not communicating properly, the focus should be on intense work to make those connections through the inbound roads, through the senses, through vestibular movement, through proprioception, through, as you had mentioned earlier, all the beautiful research now that shows certain exercise, such as running, has this amazing ability to build dendrites. It has mm-hmm. the ability to build neural connections. And so to no surprise, I know you know this, my son has been on a running program since he was like three years old, since he could toddle around a track. And it is a, a gift to us to be able to do that. It's an amazing way to get in and help wire those centers of his brain. Right. It's really, it's maddening how much, research there is that could revolutionize schools and how it is just not put in place. 100% agree. 100%. And it's not even, I mean, some of it would be free, cheap, easy. There are teachers who are willing to do it, but there's just this pressure to stay status quo and not rock the boat. That is, you know, I mean, I own my black sheepedness now, but before I hated being the weird teacher that was like, I wonder if we can try this, you know, I mean, I caught, for example, I noticed that a kid, he had been sent to me because basically his former school kind of gave up on him and he was a fifth grader, was reading at a kindergarten level and they sent him to me like basically like, just can you keep him busy, make him happy for a year or two and then we'll send him on to middle school. Well, turns out the kids' eyes could not stay still. They were not focusing. They were basically vibrating. When I was just asking him, you know, tell me about reading. What's your experience? He's like, it would be easy if the word stopped moving. I was like, oh my goodness. So I looked up a whole bunch of exercises. And so instead of doing the prescribed reading curriculum of, you know, let's read this, let's summarize. You need to ask two clarifying questions, blah, blah. I did eye exercises. I consulted with my OT. I got him to track better. And he went up three grade levels, no joke, in six months. You are, you, I wish that I could clone you and put you in every school. This discussion about how some children are just poor readers is so frustrating. Um, And you unknowingly hit on something that I haven't even wrote about publicly, but it is a huge concern with children with Down syndrome and other processing disorders. We are told from the time our babies are little, you must have their eyes evaluated and we are sent to the ophthalmologist, which is appropriate. I I completely agree. The ophthalmologist Mm -hmm. is the specialist in health of the eye, health of the retina, the optic nerve, and acuity. 
but there are 22 other components of vision all vision mm -hmm. there's there's um, three dimension, there's how big the visual field is, there's tracking, there's eye teaming, how the eyes are working together. And so the only people who evaluate that are functional optometrists. Well, Lucas um, had glasses when he was four and his eyes appeared to me that they were working perfectly in tandem with each other. We went about our business. He's an excellent reader. He learned to read very young. And all of a sudden, we had difficulties with spelling, like even a simple word. He could not spell it. And I started to think that this wasn't a cognitive issue. It was a visualization issue. And I took him to a wonderful optometrist that is near us where we live. And he did this test with Lucas that exactly what you just said even though the eyes acted much like the braces on the ankles, it held those eyes steady. The brain, did, it didn't matter. The brain was still sending the signals all scrambled. And so when he was trying to read, when he was trying to encode how to spell a word, to visualize, his one eye would track and his other eye was bouncing around from word to word. Wow. And this is, I'm coming to believe, almost a ubiquitous problem with children, at least with Down syndrome. I believe that their visual systems are vastly under addressed because as soon as you put glasses on, it appears as though the eyes are working together. Yeah, that was another one of that particular student's problems was his eyes, you know, one eye would stay stuck and the other would move. And it was very frustrating because it was one of the more obvious cases where it was not, a, I'm not going to say it was an easy fix. It was like, I spent my lunch times actually working with him because, you know, I still had a full caseload and stuff, but the day he got to get his first chapter book, he hugged it all the way back from the library. And I just cried because it was such a cool opportunity, but also really shook up and reinforced that thinking outside the box is the most important part of our job as educators. And, you know, blaming the kid is the laziest thing we can do, but that's what labeling does. Well, so, and, and I think that that mindset alone could change so much. Understanding that handwriting, spelling, reading, even behavior, his ability to attend to what the teacher's writing on the whiteboard or on, on the blackboard, all of those things are, are, are foundation, are, the foundation of them is his visual, his, his, mm -hmm. and so many, so many kids just have disorganized visual system. And then I'm sure, as you know, it can then relate to problems with discriminating left from right and discriminating body awareness. All of this is predicated on a sound visual foundation. And without it, it's not a wonder that when they, you know, take an IQ test and they're asked a question about bigger or smaller or something on the right or the left, they have no concept of that because they've never encoded it visually. You're, you're dead on. Yeah. And there, I mean, I'm just, when you said IQ tests, I was thinking about all the other things that could be influencing that score too. I mean, can you imagine like yesterday you had a scary thing happen to you and what if that day in particular, someone snapshotted your life and made judgment calls on where you would go from there? <laughs> <laughs> they would probably think that I <laughs> was the one that needed, you know, some remediation. Um, yeah, I think you'd be in a behavioral intervention. No, I'm just kidding. But um, yeah, it's just, it's such high stakes for something that is not actually dependable. So, oh man, see, I knew, I knew talking with you would get me all fired up. <laughs> well, and you know, the other thing um, that underlies all of this is if a child were to you know, unfortunately break their leg and they needed to regain the skill, the muscle, the strength, the um, all of that of their leg, they would go to therapy 
a few times a week. They would get direct therapy while they were there, and then they might get some home exercises to do at home. And within a couple of weeks, that leg would be stronger and, you know, more, the endurance would be better and things of that nature. With children with Down syndrome and other processing disorders, three times a week for 30 minutes and some follow through isn't going to scratch the surface, even if it is a a neurodevelopmental intervention. It Uh needs to be done intensely, frequently, and it needs to be a situation. I know this is going to sound corny, but it has to be joyful. If you know, you, you had a real dedicated, you know, caregiver, a mother, a father, or a teacher, and they understood this, and they took the approach, all right, come on, we got to get all this done. I have everything listed on my checkboard and we're going to, or on my checklist, and we're going to get all of this done. The child would tune out. And epigenetically, we know if you want to get in there and make real change, you multiply as many good things coming in as you can. And one of those things is joy, expectation, and unconditional belief in that child. And so you turn your whole life into just one giant opportunity. The games you give your child, the places you provide your child to play with, and as it relates to an educational setting at school, you know, if we took the OT, the PT, and the speech therapist separate rooms where they take children um, to do one-on-one therapy three times a week, and we kind of grouped the physical space, and we grouped the brain power, and we put everybody on the same track, and we grouped the amount of time that they had, and we enlisted the paraprofessionals, the aides, and the special education teacher. So everybody had one goal to get into that child and neurodevelopmentally help them learn and develop. You would multiply the intensity, multiply the frequency, and you really wouldn't be adding anything different than what you're already doing by having to see everybody three times a week for 30 minutes with all this follow through. Right. And then think about the the power for generalizing the practice, because then you could talk to the parents and say, hey, here's the shared language that we're using to, to describe these skills here are the activities to do, here's the frequency to do it. And then just really extend, like you're saying, extend the opportunities for growth. I think it's, we're, we're leaving so much on the table for people with developmental or even just specific learning disabilities. I I couldn't agree more. And um, to just add to what you just said, Unfortunately, and this isn't anyone's fault, it's not the fault of the professionals, it's not the fault of the parents, it certainly is not the fault of the child, it's the fault of the system that sometimes parents are sort of seen as adversarial. And so if a parent comes in and they're like, I don't understand how you're sitting here telling me that your tests say that she's functioning at a two-year-old level, but I'm telling you at home, she's reading and she's doing these things. And, you know, the professionals will smile and they'll be polite, but they have their standardized test that says this child is is really only functioning at the level of a two-year-old. And since in the traditional world, both things can't be true, the standardized test went out and you have this child who may be a very good reader who now has a goal to identify the letters in her first name. And Mm -hmm. there are parents and caregivers, certainly not all, but there are some, and I would put myself firmly in that camp, who you tell me what to do, you educate me why we're doing this, and I am your best ally. I'll do it every waking minute. I'll find a way to turn it into a game. I'll find a way to make it fun. And I will quadruple the efforts that you can do during the school day because it's my son. No one, no one's going to believe in him like I do. And I think that that 
is a critical piece and that's kind of low hanging fruit, right? We could address that immediately, just finding a way for to marry up what the parent knows and what the standardized tests say. Is a shame to lose because, I mean, in research shows, especially with students with executive function deficits, they need to be explicitly taught the skills across multiple settings with multiple people in different environments so that their brains can recognize, oh, when I have this problem in this setting, it looks like this. It also looks like this in another setting. And I have the school, the skills to deal with it, to like facilitate that independence. Otherwise they may be able to do something great in one setting and then not have it even bridge over, you know? And I think that that's part of the reason why times parents will say, I don't understand why he's doing this. He won't do this for you. He does this at home all the time. And I think that you're you're hitting on it. It's a different environment. The skill is not generalized. The people at school are not expecting in the same way as it is at home. And so simply aligning expectations, simply you had mentioned language, right? Aligning Mm -hmm. language, that would be a huge step in the right direction to getting everyone on the same page. When we initially talked a little bit, you said that you have a very interesting perspective on executive function, which I'm super excited to hear about because, you know, as an OT, I'm sure you address a lot of that. But then also as a mom of three boys and one of whom has the extra chromosome, how do you see executive function playing out in your world? I had the great experience when I was finishing my master's degree to do a field work at our local trauma hospital. One of the rotations was in uh, the head trauma unit. Um, Most of the patients there had sustained pretty serious head trauma in motor vehicle accidents. And many, once they were stabilized, were moved to the ICU and were in a coma. And so here I am as an OT, wondering how I'm going to work on all my great functional goals, you know, the problem solving and ADLs. And, you know, you walk into the room and the person is in a coma and you realize quickly that there's no executive function. There's no problem solving until the person is awake and attending. And so really at that point, my job was to put a program together for massive stimulation. The OT, the PT, the speech therapist, the nurse, the, the, you know, the aides that came in the room, the nursing assistants, everybody was to massively flood this person with stimulation from tactile stimulation to noises, to flashing lights in their eyes, to try to arouse the brain. And just a a side uh, for a touch is I didn't think at that point to enlist the loving wife, mother, husband, brother that was sitting at the bedside because I can imagine the intensity and determination with which they would have done those interventions. Um, that's a lesson I've only learned since Lucas. But sure, in that moment, once the person wakes up, Now you have the opportunity, you have to get them to attend visually, auditorily. You have to get orientation to person, time, and place in that order. You have to then begin the the hard work of working memory and um, what we call processing, you know, the ability to take in information and manipulate it. And you have to be able to categorize it and organize it all before you can take that leap off the deep end to the higher executive functions. You cannot go grocery shopping and plan a menu if you are unable to categorize what's a fruit, a vegetable, a meat, whatever. Mm -hmm. So when I look at executive function with children who have processing disorders, I kind of feel like traditional methods are upside down. We are looking at giving them opportunities 
to practice skills when there's holes in the foundation. So if you take a, a child and, you know, maybe it's a hygiene goal, you know, he needs to mm -hmm. um, manage himself when he goes into the bathroom and you're trying to get him to problem solve, like, okay, well, what do you need to do now? And well, but the door, you're, you're not in the stall. What do you need to do now? And you're trying to problem solve all these functional things when that child may still have difficulty back at auditory or visual processing. They may not be attending. They may not be oriented. They may not realize that it's different at home than when they're in a public restroom. They may have all this work to do on the foundation, but because they're chronologically older, nine, 10 years old, we're trying to get them to practice these higher executive skills to be able to problem solve and think through things and generalize. So one of the things that I focus on is the thought that executive function for children with a processing disorder cannot ever be linear. So it's never, oh, okay, I got good visual processing, check that off. Now I'm going to go over to auditory processing, got that, check it. Oh, his short-term memory seems pretty good. We're going to keep working on, you know, working memory, check it off the box. It doesn't work that way. If he is in our classroom here at home that we've built for him and it's quiet, he might be able to problem solve at a, a relatively neurotypical level. But if we are in a loud grocery store and he is unable to auditorily or visually attend to that level, the problem solving falls apart. And so the focus has to be on that neurological connection for the foundation and then allowing the opportunity to use that across multiple environments, as you had mentioned with the other skills. It's all about opportunity to use the skill once it's in place. Right. And I think you're really hitting the nail on the head in terms of what I see no matter what the qualifying disability or even students who aren't identified as having disabilities. And that's just that sometimes big bodies betray you in terms of people set their expectations based on what you look like mm -hmm. and they treat you as such. And then they see you as failing. If you can't meet their preconceived notions of what that age should be like. Mm -hmm. But I know for me, like my niece is, so well-spoken. Her vocabulary is through the roof and she's very tall for her age. And so there are times when I see adults interacting with her and they're frustrated that she's crying or, you know, why can't you just whatever it is that they're expecting? And you're like, well, hi, that's because she's eight years old, you know, like pump the brakes here, but you're, you're a hundred percent, right? We treat everyone with, with, these expectations, whether we know that we have them or not, and then treat them like they have the problem when it's really our job to fill the gap once we notice the gap. Right. And I, th I think too, you know, it, it shows up and the people who know the student or the child best are the ones who pick up on it. And then their instincts are kind of quelled by someone, by a specialist or who will say, well, you know, that's common for a person with Down syndrome. And there is nothing that, that infuriates me more than that statement, whether it's health or learning. You know, it's, it's common for people with Down syndrome to be sick a lot. It's common for people with Down syndrome to not be great readers. I just, I hate that. And as soon as I hear that, I know I'm not in the right place. So Lucas and I leave. But I hear from parents over and over again with their little, little kids, you know, they don't point. They don't seem attracted to things. Like when I took my older two boys to the zoo, honestly, it was like an exhausting day. It was, especially my middle son, it was just never ending questions, a thousand questions. Why doesn't the baby zebra look like the mom zebra? Why does that monkey have a different color than that monkey? It was this never ending litany of questions, of things he was noticing. And I would take Lucas to the zoo and he wouldn't even point. Like he wasn't even 
it wasn't even registering that there was something to pay attention to. And that is a huge piece to realize early on. I think our work with children with processing disorders has to be on visual and auditory attention because they're not paying attention. I used to, when, once Luke, he read at a very early age and we would go to the zoo and I'd bring a little notebook with me and I talked. I, I taught him what a Venn diagram was. And when we were sitting there and we would look at the mom zebra and the baby zebra, for example, <clears throat> I would ask him, how are, how are they the same? They're both, they both have, you know, give him the words. And then I'd point to the middle and, and you know, or to the outside and say, well, how are they different? And then once his attention was drawn to it, the next time we went to the zoo, he would point and he would have something to say about it. But you can't assume that a child with a processing disorder is going to take those things in. And if they're not, if they're skipping over active noticing, active hearing, they're not going to be able to problem solve at all. It's like if you don't get the child's attention and you start asking a question, they may not be listening to you until halfway through your question. They didn't hear the question word and they didn't hear the first part. So now they have no chance at completing what you've requested because they didn't even hear half of it. Yes. And then from the school perspective, that looks like noncompliance and you're going to the office. Oh my <laughs> gosh. You must have read my other article. <laughs> no, I mean, that's just that is where I intervene a lot in my role at school. Like, let's explore why this could be happening because nine times out of 10, it is not because the kid's not trying. And the one time out of 10, it's because the kid is trying to get kicked out as like a compensatory strategy because they don't want to be embarrassed. Wanna, they don't want to be embarrassed and they want to leave the room. They want to be done with the stress of what's being requested of them. And I, you know, I make this point over and over again, most specifically with children with Down syndrome, because it is so common. But it is pretty common for children with Down syndrome to process at half their chronological age for a while. I mean, as excellent as Lucas did with academics, it was only because I adjusted the academics to his processing level because he was 10 years old and still processed his world at a three. He was acting as a three-year-old. He would run off in, in parking lots. He would not be able to sit still. And so part of that is what we talked about in the first part of this. It needs to be a constant and intense effort to move the needle. He's now 13 and he's processing at around a six, which I'm thrilled because seven is actually neurotypical. So we're getting close. Yay. I know. Oh my gosh, 13 years, right? But the other side of that is what does this look like in the school? So you have a nine-year-old who's in third grade and they may be processing their world as a three-year-old. Well, if you took an actual three-year-old and put them in a third grade math class, I would fully expect that three-year-old to squirm, get out of their seat, try to leave, make distracting noises, tap with their mm -hmm. repeatedly try to sit on the floor and go find something else. So when that nine-year-old with Down syndrome is acting like that, it is a communication. I need an active learning style. I cannot sit and process as a nine-year-old. And so that should be our cue to say, hey, if our goal is to get him to multiply, let's throw down a whole bunch of baskets and divide up some bean bags and let's have an activity, an active session to teach him what multiplying and division is. Or let's put uh, some blue painter tape on the floor and make an enormous number line and have him jump the numbers. So now he's understanding forward, backward. You can teach him negative numbers, anything you want to teach him, as long as you make it according to his active learning need. But what happens when that child can't sit in that seat, they get labeled as having a behavior. And the whole 
focus yep. of the IEP turns into how to get that child to sit in the seat and not be a distraction. And they don't learn that way. No, because think about how much of your executive function is taxed just thinking, I need to try, I need to sit down, I need to, don't put my hand there, what am I going to do? And you're just managing the self-regulation to comply to this arbitrary and archaic expectation that you need to never talk back and not question authority and be a silent learner and all these things just aren't supported by brain science. And there are innovative teachers that find ways to get around those and not have that be the mainstay of their instructional practice. There's more of that needed. You know, when you talk about, you know, the logistics of it, I totally understand a teacher with maybe 15 or 20 children in her class cannot teach to individual needs. But if you looked at the class at a whole and you took the children that weren't doing great in math and you took the children who were fidgeting and kind of antsy and you allowed them to learn together in a more active learning style, maybe over in the PT room where you have a nice big, or in the gym where you have a nice big room to to play games and, and actively learn, I think that there would be a lot of children that would benefit from a more active learning style if we just thought about how to construct our environment a little bit differently. Yeah, just unlock the thinking. And I think um, Sir Ken Robinson, who just passed away, he has a great book about rethinking school altogether and a really good TED Talk. Um, I was lucky to meet him in a conference a while back, and he talks about how we batch students by age, and then we condemn them if they're, you know, nine years old and you're not learning to divide yet. What's wrong with you? <laughs> when it's just, we should be thinking about skill and, oh, you need this skill, come to this group. You need that skill. But, you know, it's it's lazy complacency on the part of the schools and just, oh, this is what we do in this grade And I think, and I'm not sure how it is in other states, but here in New York, there's such heavy emphasis on the standardized testing, on the common core. That's everywhere. I sort of feel like in general, students are no longer being taught how to think. They're taught how to mechanize the thinking process. So, you know, here's an algebra course and you need to think about it this way with an eye toward passing that test. And I don't think that's doing anyone a good service. There are children, there are students who are brilliant and think out of the box and are fantastic critical thinkers and they're gonna approach it from the opposite way. and. It doesn't feel like in such a standardized um, setting with such emphasis on the task that that's supported. I agree with you. And it's like I have a little bit of cognitive dissonance because the if you really look at the, sta- the Common Core standards, they're very skill-based. Yeah. They're, you know, I have the freedom as a science teacher to curate content that matches the the interests of my students because there's so many ways to demonstrate this science concept for example or you know there's like cross-cutting skills that they want you to develop in science like using mathematical thinking or in math like solving problems using patterns there's a lot of shift from content to skill that i see reflected in the common core standards Yet our funding formula and the pressure from the admin and how people even choose to move into your neighborhood Mm -hmm. depends still on this stupid test. Absolutely. Absolutely. And with children with processing disorders or any sort of a diagnosis, the funding based on that abysmal IQ test is wanted as well. And so uh, all of these things create a perfect storm for really, I would say children on both ends of the spectrum, children with processing disorders and diagnoses on one end of the spectrum, 
but also, as you say, um, the really high achieving students on the other end of the spectrum, if that ability to teach the skill based critical thinking is lost because of all of the standardization. I yes, I totally agree. Do you have specific resources or places that you go to or researchers that you read that listeners can explore in terms of your understanding of executive function and skill development? I can't even um, begin to tell you the places that I have taken inspiration from. Many of them are outside of the neurodevelopmental milieu. Um, I do a lot of reading on leadership in in corporations and taking ideas from that. And um, obviously the neuroscience and the physical sciences. But I have to say, and I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, one of the places that absolutely just reached inside my own head and changed my thinking is the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential, and it's IAHP. And there is also uh, now Doman International. And this this is this is an organization that is uh, around the world at this point, um, but it started back in the 50s and 60s with um, Dr. Temple Fay and Glenn Doman and Carl Delicato, and they have written books. I you know I say to all of the parents who ask me, they're required reading as far as I'm concerned. Some of the language is very old fashioned because it was written in the 60s and 70s. But literally my Bible, my neurodevelopment Bible is a book called What to Do About Your Brain Injured Child. And it is just this overview of the power we have to create neuroplastic change. And it runs through, you know, the inbound roads, how there's only one way in and how reading, you know, if you approach it with our children or any child with a brain injury for that matter, as visual stimulation versus phonics, which requires a processing level of five. So if you think about that, just as a side note, a lot of people with Down syndrome, it's commonly accepted. They never become good readers. Well, and I think part of that is many of them are never progressing in their processing beyond a three or a four, and you need to process at a level of five to understand phonics. Um, because the letter makes a sound and they go together and make another sound and then that makes a word and the word is an idea and if you put enough words together that's a sentence that takes a lot of working memory and processing to understand and so by teaching reading in a visual stimulation way um, making it a sensory exercise um, our children learn to read very well and very early and then it gives you a way in for um, intellectual program a rich intellectual program i have so many uh beautiful memories captured of lucas when he was three years old um, he learned to read all of the countries in africa and so I made a huge copy of the continent of Africa and I taped it to our sliding glass doors in our living room. And out of construction paper, I made little countries in Africa and I put the names on them. And within like a week or two, he knew the entire geography of Africa. And then that Wow. That opened the door to learning the capitals of those countries and then learning about animals that live in those countries. And it was never about the fact that I cared that my three-year-old knew the geography of the continent of Africa, but it was about flexing that storage and retrieval process over and over again, just like if you want to build a bicep, you got to build the neural connection, continually asking him, playing memory so then he could generalize it in a different way, making him books, looking up about the animals and just tying things together for him. And it really was, it was so joyful. And I owe the institutes um, and the domains for that mindset 100%. I would recommend that to anyone. 
Oh, I can't wait. I am so excited. I'm like taking active notes. And for the listeners, I will put this in the show notes as well. And really what I hear you saying, Daryllyn, is that you do not have to take any one professional's snapshot of your child and hold it as gospel because what we typically use for diagnostic materials and even for, you know, prescriptive materials in terms of, okay, here's what you can expect is just proven wrong. And it's, you know, still facilitated within schools for a lot of failings of the system, but that's a whole other issue. But, and also what I'm hearing you say is just a whole lot of hope that, you know, your progress is going to look different and that is all right. And the executive function might come in an order that looks different than your own came, but that doesn't reflect lack of effort. That doesn't reflect lack of capacity. What that reflects could be neuro differences. And it could be that we haven't yet uncovered what works best, but it doesn't mean that that doesn't exist as an opportunity. I, that is absolutely right. And I think just to sum it all up, I had mentioned early on that once I got my head wrapped around this new way of thinking, I was like on a mission. I was going to find people. There had to be people out there in this world, specifically with a diagnosis of Down syndrome, who are achieving things, right? And so I set out to find them. And back then, they weren't easy to find. But today, they're mm-hmm. all over the globe. There is Karen Gaffney who runs her own nonprofit and has swam the length of Alcatraz. And uh, I think she was the English Channel. And there's Pablo Pineda, who is a councilman in the government in Spain. And there's Sujita Sai, who's a, a concert violinist. And he, he has a lovely marriage to his lovely wife. And there's a young man in Asia who graduated from university with a degree from economics. And there's two parts to this. Number one, accomplishment does not determine worth. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. If any of our children ever accomplish those things, what matters is that we leave room to expect they might, to allow them to grow and develop into who they're going to be, instead of placing limits on them that we have no right to place. And so when I looked at all of these people, you know, the the scientist part of me wants to like kind of comb through their stories and find that one place where everything intersects. And they came from all different cultures and all different families, and they had all different hobbies and all different school uh, experiences. The only thing that they shared was parents who believed they could learn. And might I also add the privilege of being able to provide the things that they thought to provide to their children, which is another topic for another day. Um, so many children with Down syndrome and other developmental disabilities are, are on the Medicaid system. Their parents are struggling. Um, they are in the public education system. They're getting their public therapies. And so even if we could reach these parents and convince them, many times money is a barrier and that's kind of unconscionable. (laughs) It's unconscionable. It's immoral. I agree with you. That is why my podcast is free and doesn't even have ads on it because I feel like, you know, I was going around the country giving these talks and, you know, I, Not to say that I don't love doing that, but I wanted to facilitate little bits of learning that could be used right away for people because I saw what a difference just switching your mindset to curious rather than blaming to like skill deficit as in terms of how can I help you solve this mystery rather than, oh my gosh, you should be able to do this. You know, it just, it, it, filled people with a new hope and a new perspective and a new desire and drive to facilitate change in their own lives and then help be examples for others. And that's, 
you know, I would love to collaborate on something with you going forward, maybe get more information out to parents, just, I mean, starting obviously with perspective and mindset, but then kind of, you know, recommendations for schools. And I don't know, we can kick around ideas, but I, I would love to do that because, um, Jill, you're in New York, I'm in California, and we have parallel situations. So I imagine that all the space in between does too. We are perfect <laughs> bookends. <laughs> we are. I know, aren't we? That's so funny. Yeah. Well, Geraldine, holy cow, this is amazing. And I'm honored that you gave us the time and your thoughts and so much good food for thought. I have a lot of good reading to put on my Christmas book wish list, I think, <laughs> but I don't know if I'll wait that long. Oh man. All right. Well, I feel like this is a lifelong friendship that we are making. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> I, agree. I agree. Good things to come. Heck yeah. Well, thank you so, so, so much for your time. And, um, thank you for sharing your great ideas. Thank you for the invitation and the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Executive Function Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please head over to sarahkesti.com where you'll find more resources and chances to connect with others. And please remember to like and review the show wherever you listen to this podcast. We're eager to transform the lives of even more families. 